You're listening to What the Dev, the weekly podcast of ST Times. And now, here's Dave Rubenstein, Editor-in-Chief of ST Times. I'm here with John Alspa today. He's the principal and founder of Adaptive Capacity Labs. Uh, if you want to know what that is, I guess they're a consultant uh, company that works with companies mm-hmm. to help them deal with uh, data incidents uh, that they're having, and uh, we're going to talk about some of the patterns and some of the things he's seen over the years. Uh, John has also uh, worked in software systems engineering and operations for more than 20 years. So welcome, John. Good to talk to you. It's great to be here, Dave. Good, good. So I was looking at the website for your company, and one of the terms that struck me that I, maybe you could expound on a little bit is this notion of resilience engineering. So, so what does yeah. that mean, and how do you do it? Yeah, that's a um, what an excellent question. Uh, so, um, uh, my uh, prior to founding this company, uh, I worked at a company here in Brooklyn called Etsy, um, and uh, what I had discovered um, uh, was this sort of this this field of study, this sort of this community really um, of study that, that studied this notion, this concept of resilience. Resilience engineering is a, uh, sort of first and foremost, a field it's about 20 years old. Um, uh, it's only, it's only in the last couple of years that, um, the software that folks, uh, like myself in the software industry have been, um, looking to make connections with it. But, um, uh, in a sort of, in a nutshell, it is the, uh, the practitioner-driven, really the the, the nitty-gritty uh, understanding of what makes it such that these complex systems um, and the domains that uh, that they uh, originally studied well, uh, was in space, uh, so NASA, um, a, a number of cases uh, that happened in NASA in, in the uh-huh. uh, the later part of uh, the. Of 98, 99, um, influenced um, this group, which came out of research in human factors, cognitive systems engineering, um, uh, the study of work, cognitive work in these high uh, tempo, high pressure, um, high consequence domains. And so uh, for the first, at least the first 10 years, um, uh, a lot of where these, the resilience engineering Field did their work and uh, and and uh, sort of gathered uh, sort of reflections on 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 how this how this actually happens um, was in the domain of aviation, uh, transportation, uh, uh, wildland firefighting, medicine, basically lots critical of systems. these high temperatures. Yes, critical systems. Yeah. And so um, so yeah. So the the the. Uh, the nutshell there is my company and, and some uh, growing, uh, uh, thankfully, a growing community of people are looking to find bridges and translations of this work into the world of software. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the goal, of course, is to create software that if something fails somewhere, it can bounce back quickly or be restored quickly. Well, well that's 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 the rub. It 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 isn't in the same in the way that um, uh, maybe colloquial use of the word resilience. It's not mm-hmm. really a bounce back. The the expectation is that um, adaptation has to happen all the time in these uh, in these environments and software and uh, operating software at scale is no different. Mm-hmm. The, the, the notion of resilience 
can be boiled down to the presence of adaptive capacity. And uh, it's less about that sort of robustness uh, or reliability approaches to designing software that can't fail. It is the uh, understanding that that's, that's not a thing that can happen. There is no such thing as bug-free code. Right. Um, and uh, and, if, and if, if, if there is, it just means that nobody's used it. Um, <laughs> and, uh, uh, and so this notion of adaptive capacity comes from what is the adaptable element in, in all of this? It's people. And so um, uh, resilience is, is really trying to understand what does it mean to be, one way that's, that it's been put before is, what does it mean to be prepared to be unprepared? And mm. so, um, uh, and so uh, that's, that's really what the sort of understanding of, of resilience is, which is these, right. you know, these, these uh, investments that we make um, in uh, logging, for example, or telemetry or, you know, so, something along those lines to make it easier to understand what's happening when it doesn't behave the way we expect it to. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Absolutely. It's kind of like the, uh, similar to what we hear when people talk about knowing the unknowns. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And, and certainly, and, and yes, and, and, and resilience is about setting up conditions where that knowing can be uh, supported. That, un that, that exploration to know the unknowns that haven't been worked out yet. Right. Setting up conditions where that becomes easier and not harder. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So uh, I know that you're going to be speaking uh, in a couple of weeks um, at the mm -hmm. DevOps Enterprise Summit this year, which kicks off on October 13th. And uh, I know one of the things you're going to be talking about is looking at data incidents uh, over the last couple of years and, and being able to identify some patterns uh, that you found. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I want to kind of dive into that a little bit right now and, and uh, you know, find out what are some of the patterns that you've seen and uh, and then maybe we can talk about some of the reasons uh, for them. Sure, sure. Um, yeah. So, so uh, what I talk about in the in, in the in the conference talk is um, are, are some of these these patterns. Now, it's sort of full disclosure. There's only so much we can you know uh, uh, get done in the length of the time of the talk. What right. we focused on, um, oh, I'd say a handful of patterns that see, that are um, really the most ubiquitous. Um, and um, the uh, probably the the first is that um, is that the state we would say the 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 state of the maturity um, in the industry on learning from incidents is um, is low, uh, and we'd say that the um, the way we would sort of character way I might characterize that is that there's um, there's much more than uh, than is currently happening with the sort of conventional post-mortem or post-incident sort of uh, um, approaches um, mm -hmm. than what's currently happening. And so, um, and we're seeing some signs that that's changing. Um, uh, and so that's, that's, a, there's, that's just sort of like the uh, benchmark or sort of a, a baseline. Some organizations are doing this very well. They are, um, they're few and far in between. Mm-hmm. And yeah. this is for a number of different reasons, but it brings me to the perhaps maybe the the, the second one of the one of the most uh, one of the clearest patterns that we've been able to um, to work out is that there's a gap 
between how uh, leaders in uh, engineering-centered organizations understand the meaning of incidents, what it means to learn from those incidents, and the experience that hands-on practitioners have. Um, now, it, on the face of it, it seems like this sh should be you know, a, a statement of the obvious, but um, we think it's really important because the, there's a paradox here, right? The, the uh, leaders in almost all organizations are charged and tasked with setting up the conditions, providing the resources, allocating, you know, uh, attention um, uh, for the rest of the organization, that is, that is to say practitioners, to get their work done. Um, and, and so if they're miscalibrated on, uh, on, on the complexity, uh, the challenges that practitioners have, which show up in, 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 in pretty unambiguous uh, uh, details um, when incidents happen, then you can imagine that there would be some, um, you know, there's, there's a bit of a mismatch there. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think that that holds true for a lot of, uh, of the industry uh, mm -hmm. in terms of the people in leadership who maybe haven't been boots on the ground in a number of years, mm -hmm. uh, you know, are kind of relying on what they think they know. And certainly the situation has changed now. Right, right. And and uh, exactly, exactly. And in fact, what we what we've what we've seen more often are leaders that at one time were hands on practitioners. Actually, uh, are the pitfall is, or the, the the minefield is actually maybe even broader because it can be a lot easier for them to believe that they do have a handle on what their um, you know what their boots on the ground are are facing when right. that's not the case. Right. Right. Interesting. I mean, even in our business, you know, we we've hired freelancers who are uh, you know had been technical people, but. Uh, haven't actually worked, uh, you know, in software development in a while and, uh, you know, poo-pooing a lot of the trends that were coming down and going, ah, it's just the Fed, uh, you know, and mm -hmm. obviously the whole world has changed and and they were a little slow to catch up. So I totally, I totally get that part. Yeah. So that, that's uh, really interesting. Now, one other thing that I know you're going to talk about, which kind of uh, I thought was interesting, uh, uh, th this whole notion of of learning versus fixing from the incidents. Obviously, you right. want to learn so that they don't happen again. But mm -hmm. uh, I think you point out in your talk, in fact, that the key is actually to get the thing fixed, and and that's the top priority. Yeah, it, it, if I could, if I could, uh, um, yeah, on that, uh, if I could, uh, maybe flip the script a little bit. Um, if you were to um, see if you agree with me, the the what goes into preventing incidents is the experience that engineers have mm -hmm. in both past incidents, as well as their ability to imagine what possibly uh, might be problematic. So that they can write code in a you know quote unquote defensive manner, right? right. So in that way, what you could think of is that uh, they're relying on their memory, meaning things that they have learned, and they're putting that to good use. Of course, we don't notice non-incidents; <laughs> we notice right. incidents, right? Um, and so the the 
what we see is, um, and to some extent, this is, uh, 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 although there's a limit to this, but to some extent, the need, and this is another dilemma, the need to, or the desire to fix this thing right now tends to be, perhaps unsurprisingly, proportional to the uh, uh, you know, reputation stake or the, the, the severity or the visibility of the incident, right? Mm-hmm. And so think about this, what makes an incident difficult to handle, difficult to understand, uh, you know, difficult to sort of coordinate around responding to are those that have run the gauntlet, right? The mechanism, it means that the mechanism is likely difficult to work out. And the paradox here comes from a demand or a, a, a desire to um, get this fixed sooner is, uh, right, the, the amount of time given or allowed, sanctioned, um, to understand the incident and get it, and, and you know, uh, after the incident, and fix it so it never happens again, mm-hmm. um, is... Uh, is is high and doesn't you know it doesn't fit you know you would think that you would say well this was a straightforward case that wasn't this was a minor incident so therefore we might be able to you know it was a minor incident because it didn't last long well it didn't last long because people worked out you know they you know they had a it was a puzzle they had to figure out what was happening but it means that uh they you know what was mysterious um to them was of uh, lower than say something they really struggled with. In some cases, incidents are responded to and you know people are confident about what's going on. They take some actions and it makes things worse. And so, uh, and so you, you see, but the, but the worse it is, the less time leadership tends to want to give to practitioners to, uh, to develop a deeper understanding. And as a result, they end up with sort of shallow, understandings. And if you go to try to fix a thing based on, uh, you know, in a time constraint, uh, you know, acutely time constrained, if you go to fix a thing that was really complicated to understand, well, then you run the risk of fixing things that on the surface look like they would help, but, uh, but, but don't. And you end up with incidents that seem to be like repeats or that sort of thing. So that sort of get it fixed quick approach mm-hmm. leads to, you know, these sort of rushed follow on action items and, and, and that sort of thing. Right. And so you've, I mean, and if you were to flip that to say learning, right, which mm-hmm. I already sort of, uh, sort of um, hinted that uh, if you can, if you can make an, the understanding, if you can put some, uh, uh, effort um, and apply some skill uh, to capturing the deepest understanding of the various complex things that not only happened in the incident, but the origins of where that came, where those came from, and uh, presented in the uh, in a way that the broadest audience can understand it. Well, now you've provided fuel for better preventative design in the future. You might not know, um, you know, you might not know, it might not be a result of, of, of fixing, but when engineers remember uh, incidents and even, even incidents that they weren't involved with, um, but if a write-up of an incident is, is rich enough, 
then that you know that provides um, them some context to prevent you know uh, issues with code they haven't even written yet. Right. But well, if you can't remember it, you can't say that you've learned it. That's right. Interesting. So uh, let me just ask you one one last question, John. And I'm wondering, uh, in this uh, work from home world that we're now living in, how is that impacting uh, organizational ability to to deal with incidents such as these in terms of communication and learning and sharing the information and actually doing the remediation? Yeah, it's it is it is amazing. Uh, my colleague has um, has has written quite a bit since the pandemic uh, started on our blog in a series he's been calling Troubled Times and mm-hmm. um, and uh, it captures some of this. Um, uh, the the first thing that comes to mind is that right the 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 this work move to working from home, uh, this move to working uh, with sort of remote tools like Zoom and Slack and all, all of that sort of thing. Um, to, in some cases, uh, organizations weren't, um, uh, I wouldn't say affected, but certainly their adaptations weren't significant because they'd been doing that to begin with, but not so for others. And so a um, couple things come to mind. One is, uh, companies that uh, didn't have folks working remotely um, are are now doing you know work that's a little bit more they're having to uh, make effort to sort of externalize what they're doing right they're 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 using chat more like hey this is what I'm doing or this is you know in a in an office um, there's uh, there seem there can be uh, when everybody's co-located there can be sort of less of a need for that why because oh, I can I can see Lisa at, at the coffee maker and oh, what do you work on? I'm working on this thing over here, this app, blah, blah, blah. Here's this problem I'm working on. And those um, uh, sort of haphazard, or not haphazard, uh, um, serendipitous uh, sort of conversations then uh, you know, somewhat go away. And so the adaptation is really about getting uh, uh, people working on on software to be a bit more verbose um, about what they're doing, what they're working on, what they're what they're facing, and so as a result, especially with these new first for you know um, Teams or Slack or or or, or Discord or whatever, um, people are more explicit. There's some uh, there's some certainly some um, advantages. Uh, for others to under to, to hear, and of course, but there's a downside, which means now you've got more to read. So um, <laughs> you know, in the end, uh, the thing that stuck out for us uh, as throughout this time and working with various clients is that s- there's a, just a huge variety of, of of differences, right? In some cases, you know, companies are laying people off. In other cases, they can't hire fast enough. Um, depending on the business, they're all dealing with software, but um, uh, their business um, and where they came from before prior pandemic, you know, remote or not remote, uh, to the extent mm-hmm. they had it, um, right. just means that these adaptations uh, um, show up. So there's a, you know, the, the the two things that stick out is this: there's a risk now, which is that losing this sort of kind of uh, reference earlier organizational memory. Right, knowledge about how things work. Right. Um, uh, what's you know where where are the explodey bits? You know, mm-hmm. um, that's 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 a risk. And the last is uh, the, the second is 
um, losing learning capacity, right? Because people have more to read, more, uh, you know, Zoom calls are, 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 can be pretty exhausting. It means that their attention has to be even more uh, focused. And as a result, they might not be able to have this sort of peripheral understanding that they otherwise um, would be. So that's what we're seeing uh, sort of out in the world. Excellent. John, listen, I appreciate your time today. Thanks so much. Uh, if our listeners want to hear John's talk uh, at the DevOps Enterprise Summit uh, on October 13th, um, they can go to the website and register for the event. The talk is actually on Wednesday, the 14th, the second day of the conference, uh, mm -hmm. 4.45 to 5.15 p.m. So you can check John out there. John, again, thanks so much for being here. Thanks a lot, Dave. Appreciate it. And uh, thanks to all the listeners for hanging in there. Until next time, take care.